Is the sound working? Is it being recorded? I better watch my speech. <laughs> no, sometimes, you know, if anyone ever makes a mistake, that's one of the nice things, never to be embarrassed about a mistake. You know, we all make mistakes. And I just told someone during the interviews of one of the mistakes I made some years ago. Many of the monks know this. When I was about a seven-year-old boy, it was my mother's birthday. And so I got a, a lovely birthday present. And I thought about it myself. I prepared it myself. And the background was in that part of London, there was a food craze. It only lasted a couple of years. And that was uh, eels, jellied eels and mashed potato. And so a shop selling uh, eels and mashed potato opened up close by. So on my mother's birthday, I went to the shop and bought a live eel. You can actually cook them yourself. But I wasn't into cooking an eel. I had a shoe box and I put the eel in the box. I had the beautiful birthday paper, all flowers and nice stuff, and I, I, wrapped, I put the eel in the box, I wrapped it up as best I could, had a ribbon and tied this beautiful bow as a seven-year-old kid could, and then a nice little card. Happy birthday, Mum, from your son, Peter. And then I gave it to my mother with a nice smile on my face. And you can imagine what it's like, you know, getting a, a, a present you never expected, you know, from a little boy, your son. It was so sweet. And so I, my, I told you this story before. When was that? A couple of days ago? Okay, a long time ago. <laughs> and so I presented to my mother and she was smiling, almost crying. The little son thinks of her on her birthday and gets her a special gift. And so she opened it up slowly and took the, the red little card, took the bow off and opened it. She wanted to savour the moment that, you know, your kid doesn't forget the, your birthday but buys you something special. And then when she, she took the wrapping paper off and opened the lid of the box, the eel rose up and <coughs> looked at her. <laughs> And she screamed so loudly. And that gave me the opportunity. I had it all planned. What they call these days, I never knew the words in those days, called exit strategy. <laughs> and I ran and hid for two hours <laughs> until my mother called out. <laughs> so that's the type of loving son I was <laughs> to my mum. <laughs> Poor mum. Anyway, the sutta today uh, is a sutta which is very popular. You've heard it much before. But unlike the sutta yesterday, I added uh, some other suttas and other stories, things from the commentaries, to make a full explanation of what sometimes people call Bahia's teaching. And this is what I'm going to read out today. This is not like a sutta yesterday. This was all written out 
because it was an article which I did for some magazine somewhere some time ago. But anyway, it still contains the Buddha's teachings, so here we go. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Bahia's teaching and here is the sutta, the first bit of the sutta. Actually, just a, basically the whole sutta from the Udana. And the Udana is part of what we call the Kudaka Nikaya. So remember the four, the four main parts of uh, the suttas the Digan Nikaya, the Majjhima Nikaya, the Sangyutta Nikaya, and the Anguttu Nikaya. And the last part is the Kudaka Nikaya. It contains such teachings as the Dhammapada and in this particular case the Udana. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed, that is smelt, tasted and touched, will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized, that's from the mind sense, in the cognized will be merely what is cognized. Practicing in this way, Bahia, you will not be because of that. When you are not because of that, you will not be in that. When you are not in that, then you'll be neither here nor beyond, nor in between the two. Quite clear, isn't it? Just this is the end of suffering. Through this brief teaching, Bahia was immediately enlightened. Not just a stream winner, not just a once or two, but the whole thing. So that is an accurate translation. I'll do it just once again, but without any pauses. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sense will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. Practicing in this way, Bahia, you will not be because of that. When you are not because of that, you will not be in that. And when you are not in that, then you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Justice is the end of suffering. And through this brief teaching, Bahia was immediately enlightened. I said that two times. Anyone enlightened? <laughs> it didn't work for you, so how come it worked for Bahia? Bahia was not a monk. The Sutta doesn't, he was not a nun either, obviously. <laughs> so I just added that, sorry. The Sutta does not record him giving dana, nor taking refuge in the triple gem, nor keeping any precepts. Moreover, the Sutta has no mention at all of Bahia ever meditating, let alone reaching a jhana. Yet after receiving a very brief teaching from the Buddha, Bahia became fully enlightened, an arahat within seconds. 
how long you've been meditating here at Jarnagov. And this Bahia did it in seconds. <laughs> this episode is very well known in Buddhist circles because it seems to make enlightenment so easy. It appears that you don't need to renounce. You can be miserly and not give any dana at all. You don't need to go to ceremonies such as that taking refuge. Precepts are unnecessary and even meditating can be avoided. <laughs> ah, what a relief <laughs> for some. All you need is intelligence. As I mentioned, I think yesterday, everybody thinks they're intelligent. Is there anyone here who's not intelligent? Put your hand up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and everyone thinks they're intelligent. This makes Bahia's teaching both attractive and notorious. As usual, there is more to the story than is recorded in the Sutta. It is often the case that the suttas record only the highlights of a long episode. Just like the wedding photos do not record the first meeting, the dating and the proposal, so many suttas do not record all that occurred before the finale. So what is the full story of Bahia? How can we put the finale captured for posterity in the Udana into its full context. Fortunately, the whole story is recorded in one of the other parts of the uh, Kudakinikaya, the Apadana, past lives of the Arahats, and in the commentaries. Now, the full story. In his previous life, here we go again. Bahia was a monk under the Buddha Kasapa. We talked about him before, Buddha Kasapa. And Bahia, together with six other monks, climbed a steep mountain, throwing away the ladder, and determined to remain on the top of that rock until they became enlightened or died. So they did it on purpose, isolating themselves on the top of a mountain. This is enlightenment or bust. And what did I always tell you, I advise you? If ever you try that, enlightenment or bust, it's usually bust. <laughs> <laughs> One of the seven monks became an arahat. He managed to do it. Another became a non-returner. And the other five died on the mountain. That's not a very good result. And Bahia was one of the five. In Bahia's final life, he was a sailor, successfully crossing the ocean seven times. On the eighth voyage, he was shipwrecked, but managed to survive by floating ashore on a plank of wood. Having lost all of his clothes, he made temporary garments out of bark and went begging for food in the town of Suparaka. That was just uh, close to Mumbai. That was the main port on the western coast of India. 
And just looking at other books, uh, non-Buddhist books, Suparika, the trade from Suparika went over the ocean to the town of Phoenix Asiaticus, I think it was called, now known as Aden. And on the tip of the uh, Arabian Peninsula, from there, at the time they said the port was full of uh, Indians, Jewish people, and didn't they actually say Arabs? I think they, and the Egyptians, who were in large numbers there. That was the main empire in the west at that time. And from Aden, they would ship it to another port uh, on the Egyptian coast. And that other port was built by Philadelphus Ptolemy. And you still have um, some of the graveyards there, which actually tell some of the history of that port. And there are some of those gravestones with Dhammachakas on them and others with a gravestone of Budhang Savanangachami, Dhammang Savanangachami, Sangang Savanangachami. Because there was lots of Buddhists there. And then from there they would go up the, uh, the Red Sea and then a little journey over land to the town of Alexandria on the Mediterranean coast. And that was a very big trade route. Often people talk about the Silk Route further north, Silk Route, but that was also, the Sea Route was also very well established in the time of the Buddha. So anyway, and so Bahia crossed the ocean seven times. On the eighth voyage, he was shipwrecked, but managed to survive by floating ashore on a plank of wood. Having lost all his clothes, he made temporary garments out of bark, and went begging for food in the town of Suparika. The townspeople in Suparika were impressed with his appearance and offered him food. He didn't have expensive clothes like the monks and the nuns and the lay people here. You may not think this is expensive, but it's much more uh, substantial than wearing clothes made of bark, wood bark. So the townspeople were impressed with his appearance and offered him food respect, and they even offered him a costly set of clothes. When Bahia refused the new clothes, the people esteemed him even more. Why do you think he refused those clothes? Because probably for the first time in his life he was getting a very secure living just by arms food, because they thought he was, was very um, ascetic. Even today, if you go to India, in some places, uh, because people look to be ascetic, then they get donations. So Bahia had gained a comfortable living and did not return to sea. The people regarded Bahia as an Arahat, and soon Bahia thought he was an Arahat too, fully aligned. At this point, a heavenly being, a deva, discerned, knew the wrong thought of Bahia, and out of compassion reprimanded him. That heavenly being was none other than his former fellow monks, one of the seven, the one who had become a non-returner, an anagami. 
It is of interest to add that the remaining four fellow monks were also reborn at this time, and they all, like Bahia, eventually attained full enlightenment. There were Pukasati, Sabia, Kumara, Kasapa, and Dabba the Malian. Each one of those. It was actually quite well mentioned in the suttas. And the one I kind of liked the most was like Dabba Malaputa. And Dabba the Malian. The Malas were regarded to be a very rough people. And Dabba Malaputa, he was the one, he was only seven years of age when he had his, became a novice monk and he had his hair shaved and when he saw the hair falling to the ground that was enough symbol of renunciation to see things just disappearing. That was enough to set his mind in motion to become a full enlightened being. And once he was an enlightened novice the next thing was what do I do now? It's like I say to you that on a retreat please don't get enlightened in the first couple of days Otherwise, what are you going to do for the rest of the retreat? <laughs> you might think that's a joke, but there's something to that. He was a seven years of age, and now he was fully enlightened. What to do next? And the only thing he thought of doing is now seeing if he could be of service to everybody. And so he, one of the things he did with his deep meditation, now this is Dabba Malaputa, Dabba the Malian. And one of the things he could do, he had like what they call control over the fire element. And so he could actually make his finger, his thumb, glow in the dark. And so he volunteered to be the guest monk. So when anyone arrived late, like, you know, sometimes you arrive late, you know, into Jhana Grove. Well, fortunately, we have electricity here. But what would happen if all the electricity failed? There was a power outage. Sometimes you have flashlights and torches. But they didn't have anything like that in the time of the Buddha. They had something far better. They had monks like Dabba the Malian. And so he would take the new arrivals. This was around... The Rajakaha, the Vulture's Peak, the Bamboo Grove, and all the monasteries around that area. It wasn't just monasteries, they had some lovely caves there where people could meditate and stay for a long time. So he would take them and he would use the light from his thumb to actually show them the way. Now that was such an amazing sight to see a real supernatural power like a monk just make his thumb into a, like a flashlight, that many monks on purpose arrived late in the middle of the night <laughs> so they could see it for themselves. And I'm sure that if we did not have any flashlights or electricity here, many of you would on purpose arrive at Jhana Grove in the middle of the night you know, to see you led to your different places by Chanda Bhikkhuni's magic lit finger. <laughs> so he became quite well known. And he was also one of the monks that when he passed away, he became well known. And when he passed away, he didn't pass away the normal way as an enlightened being. 
he rose up into the air, entered the fire element, and then immolated. Now you may think that's really weird, but again, because I like uh, interesting stuff, in Athens, many years later, there was another monk, it was Samana Tejapala, I think. But anyway, that monk is recorded, I forget by who, but one of the, the locals in Athens, it's in Greek, he caused a sensation. Call him a Samana, that means he was a Buddhist. Went into the, um, the forum and died by immolating himself in fire and cause a sensation there. And sometimes I wish there was more detail there. But that's suggesting there was a monk going into Athens, maybe a couple of centuries later, and dying in a way which you know, people could see in the Forum of Athens, one of the biggest cities and famous cities in the world at that time. But that was kind of interesting, but the, the way they described it, immolated himself and then caused a sensation. It was actually quite significant to me. And anyway, where did I get to? Oh, they were Pukasati, Sabya, Kumara, Kasapa and Dabba the Malian. Then the Anagami Deva, heavenly being, informed Bahia about a true Arahat, the Buddha living at the time on the other side of India, at Sawati. Bahia immediately left Suparaka, present-day Sopara, just north of Mumbai, and he reached Sawati, which is, it is the other side of India, in only one night. Bahia met the Buddha while the Buddha was on arms round and asked for a teaching. The Buddha at first refused, for it was an inappropriate time. But on being asked a third time, the Buddha interrupted his arms gathering and gave the famous teaching presented above. Within seconds of hearing that Dharma, Bahia was fully enlightened. And a few minutes later, the Arahat Bahia was killed by a cow with calf. And having lived in northeast Thailand for a long time, those cows, or you might be water buffaloes, were dangerous. You don't know what goes through the water buffalo's mind, but often when it sees a monk in the brown robes, it raises its head up. And I was told by the villagers, that happens, be careful, because that water buffalo is getting scared. And a few times they would charge you run towards you. And I remember just on one occasion, coming back from arms round, the water buffalo started charging at Asamato and me, we were walking back from arms round, and charged both of us. Atosomato went one way, I went another way. It was a stupid decision of mine, because he had at that time much more good karma than I had, <laughs> so the water buffalo was chasing me. <laughs> but fortunately I went behind a tree, and the water buffalo eventually stopped. But you know, sometimes in those hospitals you see monks who have been gored 
by the horns of the water buffalo. And again, why do they do that? And I think because their eyesight is not good, I think they probably think that monks are like tigers about to eat them, because the tigers love the water buffalo, they could you know, kill them easily and, and eat them. But you know, they sometimes thought we were tigers. Anyway, Bahia was killed by a, they say a cow with calf here, but I think it's more likely just like a buffalo. So Bahia's background was exceptional. He had been a monk under the previous Buddha Kasapa. His powers of determination were so strong that he went to meditate on the mountain with the resolve to become enlightened or die. And, and how many of you would do that? In this life he could hear devas speak to him and he could travel more than halfway across India some 1300 kilometers First of all, I wrote down as the crow flies, and I changed that to as the levitator flies, in only one night, 1,300 kilometers in one night. If you had such a background from your previous life, and had such psychic powers already in this life, then perhaps you too would have been enlightened when you heard Bahia's teaching a few minutes ago. Have you got any psychic powers? Can you hear Davis? Sometimes people do. But do you even believe in Davis, heavenly beings? This was such an important part of Buddhist literature, heavenly beings. But I was a theoretical physicist before I became a monk. Don't you think I believed in, these, in this stuff, heavenly beings? No. But when I was six years or five years as a monk, we had the opportunity of leaving the safety of the monastery and just walking through the jungles and the mountains of Thailand. And a lot of those times, there wasn't much um, called of villages and civilization there. You went into the remote parts of Thailand, still mostly jungles. And I do remember just one day, on this trip, walking through the mountains, and I hadn't seen a village all day, and I'd run out of water, and I was really thirsty, and it was hot. And so I remember just really feeling very sort of susceptible to heat stroke and, and sunstroke, and even even drought, not having enough to eat, uh, to drink, sorry. Had a good meal that morning, but ran out of water. And so, when I got to a ridge of one of the mountains, I saw in the valley, there was a village. It's only a small village, maybe five or six houses. But I knew that even in those small villages, one of the, the um, buildings would be the general store, where someone would have kerosene, matches, cigarettes, and also other necessities of life, like Coca-Cola. <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink that stuff anymore, but when I was... Uh, everyone would drink that over in Thailand. I still don't know if it's a Pepsi or a Cola at the time which I was drinking, but nevertheless, at the top of the hill, at the ridge of the mountains, 
I made a resolution. If there are heavenly beings, please help. Because I was really worried about my health. I was not used to such dry conditions and not having any, anything to drink for a long time. And I remember the story of one of these Thai monks years ago, actually just in the Second World War. He was meditating in a lovely monastery in Burma and the people there told him, because he was Thai and because the Japanese took over Thailand and Thailand became an ally of Japan, that any Thai monk was considered by the British to be an enemy, maybe a spy. So he said, you better leave Burma as soon as you can. But he can't go over the main roads because that was controlled by the Brits, my ancestors. So my ancestors, I often tell people I have to go to places like Singapore and Malaysia to teach and Sri Lanka to wipe out some of the bad karma of my ancestors. <laughs> But anyway, so when this monk was walking through, he couldn't go through the main roads, through the jungle roads. And I've been in that area. Those jungle roads are very steep, up and down, a 50, 60 degrees uh, gradient at times. And he too hadn't seen a village for days. And he was getting really hungry. It took so much energy to walk that he thought too, he's not going to make it. He's going to die on a journey. And so this monk made the resolution, if there are heavenly beings, help. I'm a good monk. I'm a reasonable meditator. I keep in precepts. Please help me survive. And he made that resolution. It was in his autobiography, or his biography, I forget, auto or someone else wrote it. And when he turned a corner of this small path in the jungle, there was a man standing on that path to the side. And the man was well-dressed. And that was the first you know, crazy thing about this experience. This was in the jungle. You don't have well-dressed people in the jungle. You have you know, villagers, you know, been, now, if they have any shoes at all, just be thongs tied together with whatever you can tie it together with and just rough clothes. This guy was well-dressed. And he said also he had a little tiffin can. You know the tiffin cans? Just you know, one uh, silver thing over another, over another, over another. It's what you would carry your food in if you were going out to work somewhere. And he was a good monk, so good monks don't ask for anything, even if they're hungry. And so he just walked past this man, and the man said, it's a Thai invitation. Demon crap. That's how people invite you to take something. So he stopped, and this man, mysterious man, in the middle of the jungle, opened the tiffin can, and there was rice, hot rice, white rice. And not the sticky rice which they usually have in the jungles. White rice. And like Bangkok food, really delicious curries. And they don't have those things there. 
remember if you do have any food in the jungle, it's like animals which have been killed. Or like one of my friends who was a monk in one part of Thailand, this was many years later, what he got put in this bowl was a bat. Literally. And apparently it's not what it tastes like, it's what it looks like. He opened his bowl and saw this bat head looking at him. <laughs> uh, he didn't eat that. <laughs> it was just disgusting. So anyway, he got nice food. And the monk then broke another tradition at that time. He asked this man, where you come from? Hadn't seen a village in days. And this was hot, delicious food. Well, this man said, he never replied to this man, he just pointed. <laughs> and that was the story of this monk. So anyway, that was you know, part of the tradition of forest monks, those type of stories. And so, when I uh, was at the ridge of the mountains, you know what I did? I said, I'm a forest monk. I keep precepts, my meditation's okay. I need a Coca-Cola. I think it actually was Pepsi, I think. Now, look at my mind. It was a, I, I want a Pepsi. And I thought, it's a challenge. Do heavenly beings exist or not? And so I walked into that village. My eyes were down, very restrained. And I walked past, and out of the corner of my eye, you saw there was a general store there. I walked right past it, and nothing happened. <laughs> when I was about five meters past it, I heard the sound, Nimon Krap! And I turned around, I stopped and turned around, and this kid had a bottle of Pepsi Cola for me, opened, and offered it to me. Now that might be a coincidence. But then, Another man came out with another bottle, and a woman, a third bottle, a fourth bottle, a fifth bottle, I'm not exaggerating, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth bottle of Pepsi-Cola. And I sat down, and I lined the, the nine bottles up in front of me. And I thought, because nine is the magic number in Thailand. It means like, and the word is gao, which means prosperity, going forward. And so I drank a little, you can't drink nine bottles of Pepsi-Cola. <laughs> so I drank a little bit from each bottle, it was already open, and gave the rest back to the villagers who could also have a Pepsi-Cola. And afterwards I thought, these heavenly beings do exist. If you trust them and you're doing a good job, then they can help you. I say that as a theoretical physicist. So anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I actually go back to the sutra again. That's why I run out of time. <laughs> but I think that's a nice story. That's how I got my faith in the heavenly beings. And where we go? It is usual. It is usually the case that one requires very deep samadhi the stillness, the jhanas, to achieve such psychic powers. Certainly, uh, Bahia would have had a predisposition for meditation.
taking account of his previous life under the Buddha Kasapa. And he had the psychic power of the divine ear that enabled him to hear the Deva and other psychic power that enabled him to travel so fast suggests that he was practicing jhana before he heard the Deva. Perhaps this was another reason why he thought himself to be an arahat. But there is more evidence to suggest that though it was not mentioned in the text, Bahia had been practicing the jhanas. Few people are aware that the very, very same teaching that I hear called Bahia's teaching in the scene will only be the scene, was also given to another monk in the suttas. I uh, refer to uh, the sutta given by the Buddha to the old monk Malunkyaputta. And where is he? Oh yeah, this is this is a longer version of the Sutta given to Malankyaputta is in the Samyutta Nikaya, the 35th section, Sutta number 95. Venerable Malankyaputta approached the Buddha, he was already a monk, and said to him, Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Buddha would teach me the Dhamma in brief so that having heard the Dhamma from the Buddha, I might dwell alone, secluded, diligent, ardent, and resolute. Malunkyaputta, what should I say to the young monastics when an old monk like you come to the last stage of life, ask me for an exhortation in brief? Although, Venerable Sir, I am old, let the Buddha teach me the Dhamma in brief. Perhaps I may understand the meaning of the Buddha's statement. What do you think, Malunkyaputta? Do you have any desire, lust or affection for objects of sight that you have not seen and never saw before, that you do not see and would not, would not think might be seen? No, Venerable Sir. Do you have any desire, lust or affection for those sounds cognizable by the ear, those odors cognizable by the nose, for those tastes cognizable by the tongue, for those tactile objects cognizable by the body, for those mental phenomena cognizable by the mind that you have not cognized and never cognized before, that you do not cognize and will not think might be cognized? No, Venerable Sir. Here, Malunkyaputta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed and cognized by you. In the seen, there will be merely the seen. In the heard, there will be merely the heard. In the sensed, there will be merely the sensed. In the cognized, there will be merely the cognized. When, Malunkyaputta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed and cognized by you, in the seen, there will be merely the seen. In the heard, merely the heard. Sense will be merely the sense in the cognized, they'll be merely the cognized. Then, Malunkyaputta, you will not be by that. When Malunkyaputta, you're not by that, you will not be therein. When Malunkyaputta, you're not therein, then you'll be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. This is the end of suffering. 
That's exactly the same teaching which the Buddha, it's a slightly different translation. Instead of in, because of that, we have here by that. Instead of in that, they have therein. And the rest is the same. Malunkya Puta was not in, in, instantly enlightened. He said, I understand in, de- in detail, Venerable Sir, the meaning of what was stated by the Buddha in brief. Having seen a form with mindfulness distorted, attending to the pleasing sign, one experiences it with an infatuated mind and remains tightly holding to it. Many feelings flourish within, originated from the visible form. Covetousness and annoyance, as well by which one's mind might become disturbed. For one who accumulates suffering thus, Nibbana is said to be far away. Having heard a sound, smelt an odour, enjoyed a taste, felt a contact, known an object with mindfulness distorted, for one who accumulates suffering thus, Nibbana is said to be far away. When mindfulness is without hindrances, one is not excited by lust or desire for whatever is seen, one experiences it with a dispassion and does not remain holding it, holding it tightly. One fares mindfully in such a way that even as one sees and experiences a feeling, suffering is exhausted, not built up. For one dismantling suffering thus, Nibbana is said to be close by. When mindfulness is without hindrances, one hears a sound, smells an odour, enjoys a taste, feels a contact, knows an object. One is not excited by lust for objects. For one diminishing suffering thus, Nibbana is said to be close by. Sadhu Malunkya Puta, it is good that you understand the meaning of what was stated by me in brief. That's a, a bigger explanation of in the scene is merely the scene. The hindrances are absent. So your mindfulness is without hindrances and the mindfulness is not distorted. The Venerable Malankhya delighted and rejoiced in the Buddha's words, rose from his seat and after paying homage, keeping him on his right, departed. Later, it could have been that much later because Malankhya was already towards the end of his life. Dwelling alone, secluded, diligent, ardent, resolute, the Venerable Malunkya Puta, by realizing it himself with direct knowledge, in this very life, entered and dwelled in the unsurpassed gold of the holy life. He directly knew, destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more rebirth, and the Venerable Malunkya Puta became one of the Arahats. That's a bigger explanation of the Bahya Sutta, also in the suttas. But there's more. Malunkya Puta also appears in what I said to you the other day as one of my favorite suttas. Sutta 64 of the Majjhima Nikaya 
where the Buddha begins by scolding Malunkyaputta for his wrong view, then teaches the necessity of attaining at least one of the jhanas in order to know what the five lower fetters really are and then relinquish them. The Buddha said in front of Venerable Malunkyaputta that it is impossible to achieve non-returning, let alone full enlightenment, without a jhana. Just as much as it is impossible to reach the heartwood of a tree without going through its bark and sapwood. Now you're probably like me, when I heard that simile, there must be another way to get to the heartwood without going through the bark and sapwood. I thought, I'm an intelligent guy, I can, I can find a loophole somewhere. I could not find a loophole at all. To get to the heartwood of a tree, you have to go through the bark and the sapwood. And the Buddha was using that as a simile. To get to remove the five lower fetters, not even enlightenment yet, but at least to become an anagami, a non-returner, you do have to have experience of the jhana. Here we go, this is it, the translation. There is one path only, Ananda, one way to the abandoning of the five basic fetters. Those are the lower things which stop you being a non-returner. Do you know what those five lower fetters are? First one is the personality view, the adherence to rites and rituals, thinking that will lead you to Nibbana by itself, and also doubt. Those three are abolished. When those first three are abolished, what happens? Yeah, you're a stream winner. And the next one is basically karma raga. This is the desire for the anything of the five sense world and the wire part of the ill will. When those two are abandoned, what happens? Anagami, yeah. So these are called the five lower fetters. Who knows what the five remaining fetters are? The five fetters, the last five, is ruparaga, aruparaga. It doesn't mean rupa as the body, it means the four jhanas. And arupa is the four materials. Those are the two things, some of the things, but the first important things which stops an anagami becoming an arahat. Now I said sometimes, though, you're not, you can't get a, the, being attached to the jhanas is not a big problem. It is a problem. It will allow you to become a non-returner, but you won't become an arahat yet. Will you settle for that after this retreat? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not a big problem. And the next one is an interesting one. It's called mana, which is pride. Conceit. This is what even though you know there's not a self in here, even though you perceive that way, sometimes you still think that way. It's like a lingering sort of way of uh, using your mental faculties uh, of this is me. I am an anagami. 
you don't have that continually, it just pops up every now and again. There's still a lingering sense of I am. And of course, that is overcome at Arahat. And for all of those who are worried about your restlessness, Udacha, that is the force of those fetters. You still have some restlessness left. Not that much, but it's still there. And the last one is the delusion, which makes all those other four possible. The delusion has been eradicated in the realm of your views. You never ever think that these things are good, but sometimes it's like the old habits are so strong, you still indulge. You're not purely got rid of Avijja. But anyway, in Malunkyaputta, there is one path only, Ananda, one way to the abandoning of the five basic fetters. It is impossible that anyone can understand or even know what those five basic fetters are. I've explained them to you as best I can, I've given you their names, but to actually understand them, you've got to see them. You've got to experience them. It's like I can tell you a map of Singapore, actually not Singapore, uh, Paris, say. How many of you have never been to Paris? I've never been to Paris. I've seen photos of them, seen videos of Paris, but I can't say I know Paris. You have to be there and you know, explore it, then you can say you know it. So even these five basic fetters, you can't even understand them, let alone abandon them, without relying on that path. No more than it is possible to cut out the hardwood, hardwood from a tree without cutting through its bark and sapwood. What is that path? The four jhanas and the first three immaterial attainments. Of course, they also are impossible without the other factors of the Eightfold Path too. So Venerable Malunkya Puta was first taught the necessity of jhanas and later he was given Bahia's teaching. After hearing Bahia's teaching, dwelling alone, withdrawn, diligent, ardent and resolute, Malunkya Puta soon became an arahat. It is therefore certain that Malunkya Puta achieved jhana before Bahia's teaching could be effective, or else the Buddha would be blatantly inconsistent. It also adds weight to the inference that Bahia also had experience of jhana before he had heard the same teaching. Otherwise he would have reached, if he didn't have jhana, he would have reached the heartwood of the tree without going through its bark and sapwood. So what did Bahia and Venabalunkya Puta see in the Buddha's words that generated the Arahat experience? What does it mean in the scene will be merely the scene? What it means is to see with any, with, sorry, what it means is to see without any distortion of the data, without adding or subtracting from it. As even modern psychology knows, what comes to our attention as the scene has already been sifted and distorted by our desires and aversions. This process of distortion occurs prior to the event of cognition. It is impossible to see this process as it occurs. 
It is like subconscious. We can only infer its occurrence. We discover that our preferences have embellished the data to present to our mind what we wanted to see, while hostility has denied any access to the mind for those features that we didn't want to see. What we see is really merely the scene. That which we see with bare attention is seldom the truth. It is not the way things are, it is only the way things seem. And one example of that is in my first book, I think it's in that one, Opening the Door of Your Heart, I uh, printed a poem. It was an English translation, but an accurate English translation of a poem about one's love for one's mother. And just, now even if your mother is very demanding and she asks for something, please give it to her. No matter how many times she bugs you for it. Because there will come a time when your mother asks you no more when she's dead. Now I'm not relating that poem very beautifully. But in the book it was a poem which quite moved me about the love for one's mother. But what really shocked me was the author. The author of that poem was Adolf Hitler. And when you read that and you don't know who the author is, you don't judge it by the author until you see the very bottom. That changes a lot of your perceptions about that man. He did lots of very bad things. But he also did some beautiful things like that poem. And I put that on there just so people could see that we get distorted you know, by some of our prejudgments. It's not the way things are. It's just the way they seem. And the Buddha explained that it is the five hindrances that distort perception and corrupt our thinking. He called the five hindrances the nutriment that feeds delusion. The first hindrance, sensual desire, that's with the five senses, selects what we want to see, hear, sense, cognize. It often embellishes the truth. It presents to our consciousness the product of wishful thinking. The second hindrance, ill will, is the negative impulse that blocks us seeing, hearing, sensing, cognizing what we, <coughs> what we don't want to know. It blinds us to what is unpleasant and to what is contrary to our view. Psychology knows the second hindrance as the process of denial. The third hindrance is sloth and torpor. This does not distort what we see, hear, sense or cognize. Or cognize. It buries it in a fog so that, so that we are unable to discern clearly. The fourth hindrance is restlessness and remorse, which keeps our senses on the run so fast that we do not have sufficient time to see, hear, sense or cognize fully. Sights do not have time to fully form on our retina before the back of the eye has another sight to deal with. Sounds are hardly registered. 
when we are asked to listen to something else. The fourth hindrance of restlessness and a special case of remorse, inner restlessness due to bad conduct, is like the over-demanding boss in your office who never gives you enough time to finish a project properly. The fifth hindrance is doubt, which interrupts the gathering of data with premature questions. Before we have fully experienced a seen, heard, sensed or cognized, doubt interferes with the process, like a cocky student interrupting the teacher with a question in the midst of the lecture. You should now be able to appreciate it, appreciate that it is these five hindrances that distort perception, corrupt the thinking and maintain a deluded view. It is well known among serious students of Buddhism that the only way to suppress these five hindrances is through the practice of jhana. As it says in the Nalakapana Sutta, that's Majjhima 68, in one who does not attain a jhana, five hindrances plus discontent and weariness invade the mind and remain. Anything less than jhana is not powerful and lasting enough to suppress the five hindrances sufficiently. So even if you are practicing bare mindfulness with the five hindrances still active at a subconscious level, you are not seeing things as they truly are. You are seeing things as they seem, distorted by these five hindrances. Thus, in order to, in order to fulfill the Buddha's teachings to Bahia and Venerable Maronkyaputta, in order that in the seen will be merely what is seen, in the heard will be merely what is heard, in the sense will be merely what is sensed, and in the cognized will be merely what is cognized. The five hindrances have to be suppressed, and that means jhana. Now the final part. Sorry, I'm going over time. Too many stories. <coughs> the final part of Bahia's teaching. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely the seen, in the cognized will be merely the cognized. Dot, dot, dot. Practicing in this way, Bahia, you will not be because of that. When you are not because of that, you will not be in that. And when you are not in that, you'll be neither here nor beyond, nor in between the two. Just as the end of suffering. What does that mean? Of course, you all understand that, don't you? What does it mean, you will not be because of that? Please excuse me by going to some of the Pali. The Pali is Natena. Tena is the instrumental word of that. Nat is a negative. It means literally, not because of that, not through that, not by that. It means, in essence, you will not assume that there is a self, a soul, a me, a permanent essence, because of, through, or by the seen or the heard or the sensed or cognized. The Buddha is saying that once you have penetrated the truth of sensory experience by suppressing the hindrances through jhana, you will see that there is no doer nor a knower behind sensory experience. No longer you'll be able to use sensory experience as evidence for a self. The philosopher, Western philosopher Descartes, famous I am because I think, is refuted. You will not be because of thinking, nor because of seeing, not because of hearing or sensing. In the Buddha's words, you will not be because of that.
when the sensory processes are discarded as tenable evidence for a self, a soul or a me, then you are no longer located in the sensory experience. In the Buddha's words, you will not be in that. You no longer view, perceive or even think there is a me involved in life. This will, next sentence shows how old I am. You no longer view, perceive or even think there is a me involved in life. In the words of the Doctor in the original series of Star Trek, it is life, Jim, but not as we know it. Okay, I don't think there's many of you my age. So that used to be a famous quote. You are no more in that. And just to close off the loop, you might think you can escape non-existence of a self or soul by identifying with a transcendental state of being beyond what is seen heard, sensed or cognized and the Buddha thunders and you will be neither your sense of self neither here with the seen, heard, sensed or cognized nor beyond outside of the seen, heard, sensed or cognized nor in between the two neither of the world nor beyond the world the last phrase comprehensively confounded the sophists in summary, the Buddha advised both Bahia and Venerable Malokyaputta to experience a jhanas to suppress the five hindrances, thereby one would discern with certainty the absence of a self or a soul behind the sensory process. Consequently, sensory experience will never again be taken as evidence of a knower or a doer, such you will never imagine a self or a soul at the centre of experience, nor beyond, nor anywhere else. Bahia's teaching, teach, Bahia's teaching put in a nutshell the way to the realization of no self anatta. Just this, concluded the Buddha, is the end of suffering. Enlightenment requires all of the Noble Eightfold Path. It does require faith in the Triple Gem, the keeping of precepts and the practice of dhana. There is only one path to Nibbana, that is the Noble Eightfold Path. There are, no sh- there are no shortcuts. If there were, this talk would not have gone over uh, time by two minutes. <laughs> I tried my best. You got a question? Okay, great, it's not my fault then. Yeah, yes? That we're not sure, but he would have been a monk by this time. You know, sometimes you know, people think even young people can't become enlightened. But there was one, a case of another young monk uh, who was actually in the Vinaya. Well, no, it was in the Suttas. And this young monk also became enlightened when he was very young. And that um, I think he was helping um, Sariputta. I think Sariputta must have been his teacher. So when Sariputta got sick, the Buddha said, well, now a very good uh, cure for this is this very pure water obtained in a lake up in the Himalayas. So I said, said, novice, can you please fly up there? Not in Singapore Airlines, not in Qantas, but by its, only magic, its own magic powers, and get some lake, get some water. 
for Sariputta. So this little novice you know, followed the Buddha's advice and got some water, but unfortunately in that lake there was a Naga, a magical being. And so this little novice had to fight the Naga to get the water. The Naga thought, this was a, a small boy. It'd be easy to defeat him. But this was, yeah, a small boy, but he was fully enlightened. And so the Naga was very easily defeated by this small boy, seven-year-old. And so the novice could get the water and bring it back to Sariputta. And then uh, later on, when the monks were going on arms round with the novices, I've seen this in Thailand, sometimes senior monks discriminate against junior monks and novices. Do this, do that, come on, pick this up. And sometimes they discriminate against bhikkhunis. Come on, do this, watch this, organize this retreat, please. And because they were being discriminated against, this little novice, he didn't mind. And sometimes they knocked him on the head, come on, stupid novice. And then the Buddha saw that, and he had a meeting when they got back to the monastery, and said, you should never do that to, to young monks, novices like that, or to anyone. And that's when he described, was it the four or the five small things you'd always be scared of? Or, no, not scared, but um, careful of. Small snakes, even baby snakes can have venom which can kill you. Small fires, because I know this, this in living in the bush here, a small fire can turn into a big bush fire and burn down the whole monastery. They say small kings, like princes, because when the prince grows up and becomes the king and has full power, he might remember what you did to him, and you'll be very sad that you treated the little prince or princess badly. And lastly, small monks or small nuns. Because you don't know which one has got the psychic powers and is fully enlightened. And he said, that little novice, which you banged the head on this morning, he just sees an arahat, said the Buddha, he's just returned from this great lake up in the Himalaya mountains where he defeated this powerful Naga. And that was a very nice little lesson, not the story about defeating the Naga, but even little novices, nuns, fat monks. <laughs> Do you really know which ones are enlightened or not? Be careful. The fifth was, uh, I think it was four, yes. Sorry? It was four. Four, yeah, just four, yeah. I did say four or five. <laughs> I think, didn't I? Yeah, okay. So, that's um, the uh, Bahia's teaching. Is that enough? Did I say enough? Yeah, to answer the question. Is there any other question you'd like to ask before we finish off? Yeah, of course it is. I had some time ago, but I kept it. And it's yours. And then we've got another one over there. A lot of people, instead of actually having the paper copy, they photo, photo, uh, photograph it, keep it on there. Um, 
Have we got another one there? I don't have one. Yeah. But that is yours, yeah. It's a powerful sutta, and it just, you know, some real stories about devas, anagamis, and how to become enlightened. And the importance of the five hindrances, that's what stops you being enlightened. And just the jhanas overpower the hindrances and give you that clarity of mind which you can also trust. I would also just, can I just tell one little other simile? I haven't said yet. And that was a simile that, as a young man, on my holidays, I loved going to Scotland and walking in the mountains. I'd either stay in a tent or stay in a youth hostel. On this occasion, I was in a youth hostel, you know, way up in the northwest of Scotland. And with the local, the local youth hostel manager, we went up a walk on one of these mountains, just together, it's a beautiful day, no sunshine, maybe one or two clouds, warm. When we got to the top of the mountain, I saw there was another mountain close by. I su- suggested, let's go to another mountain as well. He said, no, one mountain's enough for me. And so he went back to the hostel. I went up the second mountain alone. That youth hostel manager should not have let me go alone. Because that's where people get into trouble when they go alone. And sure enough, well, I was almost at the top of the mountain, but maybe just about five minutes, ten minutes uh, before I'd get to the top. These clouds came in, you know, from the, the... It wasn't the North Sea, it was the other ocean on the other side of Scotland. And they came in so fast. And as soon as they came in, they dropped over the mountain which I was on. And I was enveloped in cloud. And it was so thick... If I held my hand out, I couldn't see my hand. And they say that's where a lot of people, you know, stupid Englishmen, as Scottish would say, now get lost and even die. And I must admit, I came close to getting into a terrible accident. I couldn't see where I was going. I remember walking, and just walking very mindfully, and then I was that far away from the edge of a cliff. And that cliff had a vertical drop a long way down. One false step, and I wouldn't be here today. I'd be lucky if I died. I'd be unlucky if you just injured and had to die slowly. Because no one would know where you are. They wouldn't be able to find you. And that really scared me. I was in big danger. I couldn't see where I was going. Later on, I looked at the maps, and I was going in... 180 degree opposite the way I thought I was going. So I thought, how can I escape from this danger? I was a physicist, so I used the laws of physics. The simple law of gravity. Water flows downhill. And so what I did was find a little stream, there's always little streams up in the mountains, and follow that stream, whichever way it went. Zigzag this way, zigzag that way. Because I was going lower and lower and lower on the mountain. And eventually it led to bigger streams and bigger streams. I followed them no matter which way they went. I was going down. 
I knew that water would eventually find a way down the mountain. Of course it did. And I remember just, amazing just how fast, just one more step and you were below the mist and you could see everything. And then I could find, I was a long way from the youth hostel on the other side of the mountain, not the side I thought I was on, but at least I was safe now. I below the mist, the cloud, and I could walk my way back to the youth hostel. And that was the simile which I've used to this day of overcoming doubt. Doubt is like being in the mist. It's dangerous and you can't really see which way you're going. And then it comes a time you follow the stream. You know, you know that's going to go downhill. Follow Eightfold Path if you like. Keeping your precepts, meditating, being kind. You follow that stream and that does lead below the mist of doubt. And when you get below, you can see for yourself. Yeah, now I know which way to go to safety. And that was my best description of what doubt is. Being in the mist. And when you get below that cloud, you can see where safety lies. Okay, that's the doubt simile. Okay, so anyway, let's do another sadhu. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. <laughs> Very good. So again, I apologize once again for going on a bit longer, but I'm sure that it's useful.